listening to the official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at wellchurchvt.com. So as Ian mentioned this morning, we're continuing our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. This is where Jesus teaches his disciples how to live, how to pray, how to relate well to one another, how to deal with conflict in a godly way. Jesus shows us glimpses of the Father and the Father's heart toward us. And he opens this sermon with a poem, which Adam and Ian both preached on in the previous weeks. It's a poem which we refer to as the Beatitudes. And it announces God's favor on a surprising bunch of people, the meek, the mourning, the poor in spirit, and as well the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So today we're going to focus on what Jesus says in the uh, verses that immediately follow the Beatitudes, Matthew 5. 13 through 16, which scholars sometimes mention as kind of an extension of the Beatitudes. Let's look at those verses. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus loved to use images when he taught. These are some really basic but really powerful images, salt and light. And he's using these images to paint a picture of the disciples' vocation. This is a picture of what will be true of us if we're walking with Jesus and following his example. So I want us to do a little bit of digging into these images to see what meanings they carry. And I want to start with salt, sodium chloride. Now, the most obvious thing about salt is it's a seasoning, right? We use it to enhance our our food, the, the flavor of our food. It brings out the flavors in food. Think about a baked potato, Now think about a baked potato with salt. It just tastes so much better. Um, Have you ever noticed that salt makes you want to eat more? Studies actually show show that salt increases our appetite. Of course, we all know it also makes us thirsty. But salt doesn't just enhance flavor and increase our appetite and and our thirst. For the vast um, spread of history, salt was absolutely necessary for preserving food. You could take raw meat or raw fish, and if you salted it down, it suddenly had a a shelf life. Um, Anyone here like pickles? Pickles? (laughs) So pickles are a holdover from the days before refrigeration. How are you going to preserve your vegetables? Well, one, one way was to create a salt brine and stick your vegetables in it, and that would extend... Uh, the shelf life, so to speak, of your harvest for a long, long time, a year or more. So in the days before refrigeration, if you didn't have salt at hand, especially in a desert climate, you might not eat. Salt was that important. 
Salt also served as a medicinal in ancient Egypt and Rome and Greece and in the Arab world. Now today we know that certain bacteria can't tolerate a very saline environment. But folks didn't know about bacteria uh, back then. They did know, however, that when you applied salt to a wound, it helped to fend off the infection and it expedited healing. So salt was a medicinal with healing properties. And finally, salt was used as a fertilizer. In just the right amounts, it made soil more productive. It actually helped crops to grow. So when Jesus is saying to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, what is he really saying? This is what I believe he's saying. He's saying, you are an enhancer of the God flavors in this world. The God flavors, that's a term that Eugene Peterson uses in the message. You, you are an enhancer of the God flavors in this world. Goodness, truth, beauty, love. You bring these things out in other people. And ultimately, you make people hunger and thirst for God. He's also saying you are a preserving force in a world that is subject to decay. You keep it from going bad. He's saying you are a healing balm in a deeply wounded generation. Finally, you are an agent of fertility, of fruitfulness in a spiritually sterile land. That is our vocation as Christians. That's quite a job description, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I qualify. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that my training and experience have not prepared me for this. It seems like too grand and too complicated a task. Maybe, just maybe after a few lifetimes of discipleship training. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't say, you ought to be salt of the earth. He says, you already are the salt of the earth. If you follow Jesus, this is who you are. And if you, if you think everyone else in this room but you uh, qualifies. You, you don't qualify if, if, you, if that's what you're thinking because you are ordinary and maybe because you experience limitations like let's say you have a timid temperament and personality or maybe you struggle with a chronic illness that limits your time and ability to get out and maybe you're just scraping by financially. I want to, us to remember who Jesus was speaking to when he said you are the salt of the earth According to Matthew 4, the Sermon on the Mount was addressed to people who were sick, people who were paralyzed, people who, who had severe pain, who had seizure disorders, people who were even demon-possessed. And more specifically, here's who Jesus is, is addressing. Remember, he just spoke the Beatitudes. So he's speaking to those on whom he's just pronounced God's blessing, and that's those who mourn those who are impoverished of spirit, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who've been ridiculed for following Christ, those are the people who are the salt of the earth. So if you are destitute in spirit and know that you have no good thing apart from God, if you're grieved over loss and brokenness in your life and in this world, if you hunger and thirst for God's kingdom to come because you know there's not a lot of hope for the kingdoms of this world, if you're so sick of division and hatred that you're willing to do what you can to bring peace, then you are the salt of the earth. You are God's primary means of giving people a taste of his kingdom. So I want us to move ahead to verse 14. 
Because of the same people that Jesus is, uh, says, you are the salt of the earth, he says, you are the light of the world. So let's stop and ask, what does light do? Well, first, it makes things visible. Th- things that we can't see, we can suddenly see when there's light. Light feeds biological processes of growth. Think photosynthesis. Thirdly, light exposes that which has been hidden or kept in secret. Think about theft, right? It tends to happen at night, at least um, proverbially. But I did look it up. 72% of car thefts happen at night, not during the day. There's probably a reason for that. You know, you can't put a car in your pocket. You have to rely on darkness, right, to cover, to cover the theft, to cover the sin, to cover the secret. Light exposes that. Finally, light gives direction. Because without light, we don't know where we're going. We can't see the path ahead. We can't move forward. So what is Jesus saying to his followers when he says, you are the light of the world? Here's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying, you make my reality and my love visible. You help create an environment in which people around you can flourish and grow into who they were made to be and experience true life. He's also saying, you expose corruption and injustice just by being who you are. You expose corruption and injustice so that restoration and healing can take place. And finally, here's what he's saying. He's saying, you illumine people's paths, helping them to see the way forward, including the way to me, he says. That's also our vocation as Christ followers. That's also our job description, to illuminate our world with Christ's light so that people can see things for what they are and that they can begin to glimpse him and be drawn to him. But when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, there's something else really important that he's saying that I don't want us to miss. Because who else does the Bible call the light of the world? Jesus. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. So when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, he's saying to his disciples, you are to the world as I am to the world. I'm putting my light in you. That has deep implications for what it means to be a Christian. How many of you have heard God has a plan for your life? You've heard that? I believe that. I believe that 100%. But I also believe that God has a plan for the world. And that as Christ followers, we are part of that plan. God is on mission. What is God's mission? His mission in this world is nothing short of full restoration of our world. Um, Here's how Scott McKnight, a theologian, puts it. He says, God's mission is to redeem a broken creation through the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ, through the gifts of the Spirit to God's people, to you and to me, in order to bring creation into its perfect order. The Bible says the exact same thing in seven words. In Revelation, which Luann quoted earlier, he says, Behold, I am making all things new. That's God's mission. And how is he making all things new? He's making all things new through Christ. And as co-laborers with Christ, he's making all things new through us. Now, will we be able to bring full restoration to this earth? No. But with each little act of kindness that we do, each time we stand up for someone who's been dealt an injustice, each time we take a step to defend God's creation from destruction, 
we are announcing that God is on the move and that he will complete the restoration that he started when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So how do we fulfill that vocation? How do we live that on the ground? Let me ask you a question to think about here. Does letting your light shine, does that mean doing good works? Or does that mean letting people see the redeemed you, the hope that you carry, the faith that you bear? I think the answer is both. Because who you are is going to be displayed in what you do. And what you do is always a reflection of who you are. Think about salt and light for a moment. They are what they do, and they do what they are. You can't separate their identity from their function, or their function from their identity. Does that make sense? Light isn't light if it doesn't illuminate. It just isn't. Saltiness is so inherent to salt that if salt loses its saltiness, it isn't salty, and it isn't salt. Have I confused anybody yet? So when Jesus says, let your light shine, I believe this is what he's saying. Live into your redeemed self. The redeemed self that God is making new and more like Jesus every day. And people will see God in who you are and in what you do. And of course, you will do good works because that's the natural result of God's redemptive work in you. I think the key word in this scripture here is the word let. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify the Father in heaven. I love that word, let. There's so much freedom in that word. There's so much spaciousness. Are you an artist or a writer or a musician? Let your light shine through your creativity. Do you listen well to other people. Let your light shine through caring conversations with people. Do you take pleasure in showing hospitality? Let your light shine through the preparation of spaces that make people feel welcome. Does your heart break when you see a homeless person? Let your light shine through a gesture of compassion. Has God given you the gift of a peaceful and calm spirit? Let your light shine among those who are filled with fear and anxiety. Has God brought you through a long illness or a complicated injury or an addiction? Let your light shine by visiting those who are sick or injured or sharing your story with them or encouraging those who desire to break free. Here's a few other ways I believe that Christ's light shines through us. I believe that his light shines through us when we share encouraging words when we make decisions with integrity, when we conduct our relationships with honesty and vulnerability, when we forgive others as we have been forgiven, when we exhibit generosity and give freely, when we speak truth in love, and when we show a willingness to lay down something that the world deems valuable, but we're willing to lay it down. I want to share four things with you that I've been learning about serving others. The first thing that I've been learning is that little things are big things. I have a bumper sticker on my car. It's a Mother Teresa quote. She said, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. 
I think we constantly underestimate the power of small things. The fact is, sometimes, at least for me, I don't know about you, I can become cynical and think that because I can't do something really big, it's not even worth trying to do something small. I hide my light under the bushel of cynicism. Here, let me give you an example of that kind of thinking. Say a couple in the church has a baby. Tasha sets up a meal train. By the way, we're so thankful for Tasha setting up meal trains. Can, can you raise your hand if you've been either the recipient of a meal train or you've prepared or helped prepare a meal for a meal train? Can you raise your hand? That's awesome. There's a lot of, of um, people who've been blessed by this ministry. So say a couple in the church um, has a baby. Tasha sets them up meal train. People sign up to bring a meal over for a week or so so that that couple doesn't have to um, cook every night of that first week or so when they're home with their baby. I sign up. But I know that that couple's going through a really hard time adjusting to being parents of an infant, especially, say, after the dad goes back to work. Maybe breastfeeding hasn't been very simple for the mom like she thought it would be. There's been issues with the baby gaining weight. The mother's really worried about what's going to happen if the baby doesn't reach a certain weight soon. And she's exhausted from sleepless night after sleepless night. My meal is not going to be able to solve any of those problems. Is it worth it for me to prepare that meal, to shop and cook and pack and deliver? Is it even an offense for me to make that meal and bring it over and think I'm helping out in this really big way when I'm hardly scratching the surface of the deep need that that family has? The answer to that question is yes, it is worth it. It is worth it because a meal is always more than a meal. It's taken me a long time to believe this is true, but I'm learning to trust that people aren't looking for us to solve their problems. They're looking for us to love them in their problems. And when we do that well, they can see more clearly the God who alone can solve their problems. It puts God into focus. Those little things put God into focus. Let me ask you, how much salt does it take to bring out the flavor in food? Not much. How much light do you need if you're camping? You have to go out to the outhouse in the middle of the night. A single flashlight, that's all. Little things are big things. Let God do the heavy lifting. Second thing, serving people who cannot repay us brings a special joy. something I've been learning. Serving people who cannot repay us brings a special joy. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, for they will invite you back. That will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. When I lived in Boston, um, this is 15 years ago, I went on a women's retreat at my church, and I met a young lady about my age named Kieran, and we took a walk during the retreat, and we just had a lot in common, and we felt like we were speaking really deeply into each other's lives. I just felt like, wow, I could have a really amazing friend. Um, But she was going to be moving like within a month because her husband had landed a job out of state. Well, after the retreat... I got an email from her inviting me over to tea. She said in this email, 
We're moving soon, but I don't want that to get in the way of having you over. I'd like to get to know you better. What? Someone would like to have me over just to get to know me better? And she's making the effort to do that even though she's about to move. I still remember um, the delicious brownies that she made and the view from her Beacon Street apartment. Um, and uh, I, we lost touch after she moved. We, I haven't seen her since. But I will never forget her rare gesture of hospitality. Her gift to me was not just a few lovely hours of conversation. I don't even remember what we talked about. But it was a whole new way of seeing hospitality. Hospitality as an opportunity to give to those who cannot repay. There's a special joy that comes when we do that. Third thing that I've been learning. I believe we get it wrong when we think that we have to serve alone. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he's not talking to one person. He's not pointing at somebody. He's saying, you, you as a collective. This isn't a solo calling. It's a collective calling. There are times when we are called to stand up and be a light in the darkness, and we're the only light. But most of the time, Jesus is calling us to serve together. Think about when he calls his disciples to preach the kingdom of God. Does he send them off one by one? No, he sends them off in teams, two by two. When we serve together, I believe that the light shines all the more brightly. And it's just a matter of fact that you can accomplish a lot more. Think about this. Twelve people can accomplish in one hour what it takes one person 12 hours to accomplish. Big difference. So speaking of serving together, I want to put in a plug for the opportunity that we have to serve the homeless folks at a new place at the end of this week, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We're going to be preparing meals for the guests of a new place, and it will be an opportunity not just to make a meal and to feed people, although that's really important, but it will be an opportunity to give them the gift of our presence. We can't necessarily solve their problem for shelter or a job, but we can share the love of Jesus just by being with them just by the gesture of making a meal, just by being open to them in conversation. Now, the truth is, um, you can sign up and make a meal at a new place on your own any night of the year. Every night of the year, they depend on volunteers to make a meal for them. But why not do it together? I believe that we get it wrong when we think we have to serve alone. Jesus takes joy when people serve together. Finally, last thing I'm learning about serving others I need to serve for my own sake. I need to practice preferring others above myself because it doesn't come naturally. For most of us, that doesn't come naturally, and we need to train ourselves. Service is a great way to train ourselves. I also need the perspective that serving others gives because I can become caught up in my own problems and the own issues in life. And there's nothing like serving other people in their challenges to bolster my faith that God can indeed take care of my challenges. Um, When I was a graduate student in Boston, um, I was a doctoral student. uh, I struggled in my graduate program. I'd always been a really hardworking high school student, college student. I took a lot of pride in getting good grades. And I was suddenly surrounded by peers in my graduate program who had almost entirely gone to Ivy League schools, and I had not. They were incredibly smart. They were ridiculously articulate. I will never be as articulate as they are, as they were. It was often overwhelming. And I was very busy trying to keep up, just to keep up. Um, But I knew if I gave every waking hour to my schoolwork, I would just implode. 
So on Friday afternoons, I volunteered with a ministry outreach to international graduate students and their spouses that met at a local church. And on those Friday afternoons, when I hung out with these dear ones from countries like China and Vietnam and Korea and Singapore and Japan, they were mostly Asian, I saw the obstacles that they were facing earning a graduate degree in a foreign language at the same time as they were trying to adjust to a foreign culture. And I saw how much they missed their families back home and the heart-wrenching personal sacrifices that they made to earn a graduate degree at an American university. And it gave me a whole new perspective on my own struggles. Sometimes on Friday afternoons, when I had a ton of work and I was feeling particularly overwhelmed, I thought to myself, I just can't do it this week. I can't volunteer this week. I have to take this week off. I don't have the time. But it usually turned out that volunteering was actually just what I needed. And I always left feeling hopeful and alive again and closer to God. So in closing, I want to share with you what I think is the most amazing part of letting your light shine. It's when a little bit of that light of Christ that's shining through you out to others is reflected back to you on someone's face. Have you ever experienced that before? If you have experienced that, I want to invite you to remember, where were you? What were you doing? Because I believe the answers to those questions might be an invitation for you this morning to let your light shine all the more in that place or in that way. If you haven't experienced that, would you like to? God is making all things new, and we are part of his redemptive plan for the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. May many taste the kingdom through your good works. And may many encounter the light of Christ through who you are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have sent your Son to be the light of the world for us, and we thank you for that generous, outrageous act of love, that gift. We receive it. We pray that you would help us to receive it. And as we receive it, we recognize that you are reforming and making us into uh, your son, the image of your son, that you are infusing us with your, your light, the light of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we want to take that light and let it shine. Show us how to do that. Show us how to be more open, more available, uh, more willing Um, We pray that your light would shine and that we would get to see a little bit, bit of it reflected back so that we can be assured that indeed you are using us. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, you've sent people to our lives who have let your light shine through them. And that's how we have seen you. And that's how we have known you. And that's how we have come to you. Would you use us, Lord, to do the same thing in the people in our lives around us, in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our circles, Lord. We look for what you will do through us, and we thank you for the gift of life that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community reintroducing Jesus in Vermont through worship, service, creativity, and community.